please turn with me in your Bibles to the letter of the Apostle Paul to the Colossians. Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And our subject this evening is Christ dwelling in us. While we return to our studies in the letter to the Colossians after quite a lengthy Break. I think it was about a month ago since we were last in this letter. And so uh, we return to uh, these verses which have been very challenging for all of us because uh, it's speaking of the putting off of the old nature and putting on the new nature as uh, we have considered in previous studies. And uh, well, we just look, for example, at verse 9 and verse 10, lie not one to another, seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. So it's about putting off the old nature and putting on the new nature, feeding the new nature that we have been given as believers. We are new creations, but the old nature is still there and will remain with us until we go to be with the Lord. And then we will be perfected completely. But in this life, there is that battle, that struggle against those uh, two natures. The one lusteth and warreth against the other. And uh, we must therefore put on the new nature and do those things which uh, will strengthen the new nature. And, uh, well, we are told also by the Apostle Paul those things that we are specifically to put off. Lying was one which we read in verse 9. The previous verse, verse 8, But now ye also put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication, out of your mouth. So all of those things belong to the old nature. That's what you did when you were unsaved. And uh, you loved doing those things. You felt you were entitled to those things. And you saw nothing wrong in getting angry. You saw nothing wrong in being malicious or blasphemy, slandering other people, criticizing other people. But that's the old nature. Put those things off, says the Apostle Paul, that belongs to the old nature. And now we put on the new man which is renewed, verse 10, in knowledge after the image of him that created him, after the image of Christ. So we are not to be like ourselves, like the people that we once were. We are to be like Christ, conformed to his image, the image of him that created him, and all of these things, of course, they are very challenging for us. And, uh, well, we left off last time 
with verses 12 and 13, again further exhortations, put on therefore as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, meekness and long-suffering being the daughters of humility and uh, closely connected, forbearing one another, forgiving one another. If, every, if any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And that was very important. We must forgive one another, such a vital part of our witness. Why? Because, uh, well, because God has forgiven us. And uh, the gospel message is all about forgiveness. And we as Christians, we are presenting the gospel to the world. We are custodians of the gospel. We're ambassadors of Christ. So if we don't want to forgive anybody, we are giving a bad witness. And uh, we are told to be witnesses of the gospel, to be those who forgive one another because, as we read here, Christ has forgiven us. We have forgiveness. So also do ye. If we don't, well, that is a poor witness. It dishonors Christ and it is a false representation of the gospel. But the Apostle Paul is, well, he's going to continue in this same vein. And it's going to continue to be challenging for us, I'm sure. Uh, but there will be further exhortations. And uh, the great theme of these verses really is uh, that Christ dwell in us, that we show forth Christ in us. We are aiming to present Christ to the world, not ourselves. So verse 14, And above all these things put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness, and, uh, or perfectness. And charity really means love, as many of you will know. Love is above all these things. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying. Love is all important. Love is supreme. The supremacy of love in the church amongst believers is paramount, is above all. And uh, well, uh, there are many New Testament passages we could mention. I read earlier uh, 1 Corinthians 13 and all the wonderful things that are spoken of about love, that it is the more excellent way that, uh, well, there's faith, hope, charity, says the Apostle. But the greatest of these is charity. The greatest of these is love. And others as well, not just the Apostle Paul, the Apostle John, of course, spoke very much about love. The disciple whom the Lord Jesus Christ loved, he spoke of the excellency of love. He said that God is love. Love is paramount. The Apostle Peter too, 1 Peter 4 and verse 8, he writes, And above all things, have fervent charity among yourselves. Above all things, just like the Apostle Paul is saying here, and above all these things, put on charity. Have love. That's what the Apostle Peter says. Above all of these things. And this is love to one another. Above all these things, put on charity. It would include, of course, love for God, because 
we cannot truly love one another properly without loving God. But this word charity really is speaking about our love to our fellow believers, to our fellow men and those around us. Charity, love for one another. And again, the Apostle John wrote, as you will well know, 1 John chapter 3 and verse 14, we know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. It's a sign that you are saved, that you love the brethren, you love fellow believers. You never used to love fellow believers before when you were unsaved. But now you know that you have passed from death unto life because you love the brethren. You love those in the church. And then he goes on to say, He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. Not to say that he's literally dead, but he's still dead in his sins. Somebody who doesn't love people in the church, other believers, no affection for them. Well, that's a very concerning sign. You're abiding in death. Perhaps you're not actually saved. If you have contempt for other believers, we know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. It's a sign. It's a great sign that you are truly saved. So it's very important in that respect. But the Apostle Paul describes it at the end of verse 14 as the bond of perfectness. The bond of perfectness. What does that mean? Well, whenever we read that word perfectness or or we are perfected in the New Testament, it means maturity. It means uh, growth. It doesn't mean that you're absolutely perfect. It means that you are growing. You are being perfected. You are growing spiritually. You are maturing. And uh, so some say... And there are a number of different interpretations, but some say that if you have love, this is what the verse means, if you have love, then you have all the other virtues. If you love one another truly, well then you will be long-suffering toward one another. You will be meek. You will forbear one another. If you love, you will do all those things. So uh, love is the bond of perfectness. But others, including uh, William Hendrickson, make uh, the following application, and I think this is uh, perhaps most applicable. Love is the bond of perfectness in that uh, love binds us together and uh, it binds us and causes us to grow, causes us to mature. If we have love as a church, if we love one another, that's the way that the church grows. That's the way that the church matures and moves forward. It's love. It's not simply uh, uh, intellect or uh, doctrine or even service. What good would it be if we all had the same doctrine, we all believed the same things, and uh, we all worked very hard and uh, we uh, uh, were all very intelligent in the word of God and so on, what good would all that be if we didn't like one another? If we actually hated one another? Yes, we have all the same doctrine. We believe the same things, but we don't really like one another. There's no love in the church. 
That's not a church that is going to be blessed. That's not a church that is going to grow, that is going to mature, that is going to be perfected. And so love is very important. Love is uh, paramount, is supreme. Remember what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 2. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove all mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. So that's what the Apostle Paul says. I can understand all mysteries, all doctrines, the word of God. I can have great faith so that I can remove all mountains. But if I don't have any love, then I'm nothing. And that's the same for all of us, for the church. We could be very well grounded in the doctrines, sound doctrine. We can serve very much. We can tire ourselves out with service. But if we don't have any love one for another, then it is worthless. We won't uh, grow. We won't be blessed. We won't be perfected. We have to remember that and maintain love for one another, not just the doctrine and the service, valuable though that is, but the love, that's how we grow. The bond, the bond of perfectness. It's love, it's charity. And, uh, well, it's a beautiful teaching, really, and we must uh, cleave to that teaching. This is the way to grow. The church grows according to the measure of the love that we have one for another. But then the apostle speaks about peace. Verse 15. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also ye are called in one body. And be ye thankful. Peace, of course, well, it goes without saying, as individual believers, we must have peace, peace that we are forgiven, forgiven all our sins. They will not be held against you, your past sins, your present sins, your future sins. Well, you have peace. They will never count against you. Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. When you stand before God, there will be no condemnation. That is peace in us. And we must show forth that peace as individuals. Peace, of course, that God is sovereign. God is ruling over us. God is ruling over everything. No matter what calamity may come in our lives. No matter what uh, suffering or distress or grief. Well, God is ruling over all things. He does all things well. And so that gives us peace. God is in charge. God is over everything. That is so very important for believers. But peace as a church, really, this is what is being spoken of here. And again, it's between one another. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also ye are called in one body. This is speaking of the church, not just individuals. We are all called to be one body. Let peace reign amongst us. And this is so very important. We remind ourselves of what was written in verse 11, speaking again of the body of uh, Christ and what that looks like where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, 
but Christ is all and in all. There are to be no barriers. There's peace. There's no class barrier, no status barrier, no uh, ethnic barrier. There is peace. Peace, one body, the elect of God. That is how the apostle describes us. And uh, in eternity past, when God chose his people, there were no barriers. There are no barriers. There was only peace between them. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also ye are called in one body. We are called to peace. And so we strive for peace. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts. Many people just talk about peace. But uh, there is no peace in their hearts. They say they want peace. Peace in the church. But it's all just talk. In their hearts they don't want that. Same with love. People will talk very much about love and being loving. They will talk about these things. But is it in their hearts? In their hearts, perhaps they're very unloving, very unkind, very critical. It's all talk. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts. Your heart wants peace. It's a sincere peace. It's not just something you talk about. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts. And so this, again, is a great instruction for us, an exhortation for us. We must strive after charity, love, and peace. If there are issues between us, we seek to resolve them peaceably. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also ye are called in one body. We're called to be one, no divisions, no hindrances. And then at the very end of verse 15, and be ye thankful. Well, uh, being thankful is very important to being at peace. If you are not thankful, if you are uh, discontented, well, then that takes away your peace. When you feel that you deserve something more, I'm not happy with the way things are. I'm not happy with the way uh, the church is. I'm not happy with uh, the way that people in the church are. That takes away your peace. Of course it does. But if you are thankful, you're thankful that the Lord has led you to this church or to whatever church you attend. You're thankful that the Lord has given you so much, everything that you have. Well, then you're at peace. You're not constantly coveting after this and that. I need this in my life. I need that in my life. No, you're at peace. You're thankful. Be ye thankful. That's the key to being at peace, be ye thankful, of course, is very humble. It's a sign of humility. Those who uh, are constantly covetous, well, that is a sign of pride. I want more. I deserve more. I'm entitled to more. That's pride. Humility is thankful. I don't deserve anything that I even have. So I'm thankful for these things. Humility, not pride. And peace comes with humility. All these things go hand in hand. Verse 16. Now we come to the word of Christ. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. Well, let's take that bit first. 
the word of Christ dwelling in us richly. Well, I'll be quick with this because it's quite simple. What does it mean for the word of Christ to dwell in us? Well, we have the word of God. We have the scriptures. It means first and foremost that we read the word of God. Of course, that's a very obvious application. And we read it every day, regularly. Every day, whenever we can, devotional reading. If you only read the word of God, perhaps once a week, or uh, only when you come to church, well, that's not really letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly. It's just uh, sparingly. The word of Christ must dwell in us richly. Every day, reading the Bible, meditating upon the word of God. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Also, we must be doers of the word, not just hearers. Doers of the word. That's uh, another way in which we can apply it. The word of Christ dwells in us richly. We uh, are governed by the word of God. The word of God, it uh, dictates, as it were, everything that we do. We obey the word of God. We do what the word says. We agree with it and we submit to its authority. The psalmists so often would say uh, these uh, wonderful words of affirmation, particularly Psalm 119 and verse 11. Thy word have I hid in mine heart that I might not sin against thee. That's a great example of the word dwelling richly in us. Thy word have I hid in mine heart, that I might not sin against thee. I'm going to let the word of God govern me. I'm going to obey the word of God. I'm not going to sin against God. I'm going to hide God's word in my heart. And uh, verse 105 of Psalm 119. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. The gospel, the word of God, lightens my way in this world. My view of the world is enlightened by the word of God. The word of God lights my way as I walk in this world. That is my light. Not uh, the, uh, the word of the world. The world doesn't uh, light my way, doesn't enlighten me. I don't walk according to what the world says. The word of Christ dwells in me richly and the word of Christ directs my paths and my feet. It guides me. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. It's so sad when we see Christians or come across Christians and you speak to them. It seems it's the world that dwells in them richly, not the word of Christ, the world. That's what they hold the most and cleave to the most, the word of Christ dwelling in you richly. And of course, it means that we love the word of God. Oh, how I love thy law, says the psalmist again, Psalm 119, verse 97. Oh, how I love thy law. It is my meditation all the day. We love the word of God. Of course we do. The word of God has saved us. Yes, Christ has saved us. We know that. But the word of God revealed Christ to us. And it's only when we read the word of God and heard the word of God preached 
that we realized what we were and how much we needed Christ. How could we not love this word? How could we place something else above this word that has saved our souls? Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. In all wisdom, well, we know it's only the word of God that gives us wisdom. But it's wise, again, it's wise to let the word of Christ influence you and nothing else. Be wise. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And then we have those uh, uh, often controversial words, and I'll explain why, although some of you will know why already. But teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Now, uh, there is uh, the controversy concerning the psalms and the hymns and the spiritual songs and what they mean. What are the distinctions between them? I'm not going to go into all of the details and the debate uh, concerning those things, only to say that some uh, insist there is no distinction between uh, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. They all mean the psalms. And, uh, well, certainly psalms and hymns, you can uh, see how they come to that conclusion, but spiritual songs, uh, perhaps not. But others, and perhaps this is uh, most common in uh, Reformed circles, they do make some distinction between these uh, three categories. The psalms, obviously, are the Old Testament psalms that were sung. And the hymns, well, they suggest that it is... Uh, Hymns are uh, objective praise to God, praising God for who he is. And uh, the spiritual songs, well, that is songs that uh, uh, speak of a particular doctrine, like grace, for example, or mercy extended to us. For example, Charles Wesley, and can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood it's speaking about his interest in the Savior's blood. It's not objective praise necessarily to God. He's speaking about how it extends to him, how God's grace is communicated to him, spiritual songs. And, uh, well, we, we can't be entirely clear what the distinctions are. Some say that the Apostle Paul is really just saying the same thing to emphasize the need for worship. And how singing is so important to a believer. And of course it is. To sing praise to God. It is, uh, uh, well, the highest expression of the soul. We uh, can speak about the Lord. But the uh, singing of uh, the word of God in psalms. Or in spiritual songs or in hymns. Well, it really blesses the soul. And gives the soul greater expression. But singing with grace in our hearts to the Lord. But we also have those uh, words just before that. Which I've uh, 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 gone over. Teaching and admonishing one another. In psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Well what does that mean? Well the sense I think uh, here. Uh, is again concerning the whole church. Now, the whole church is not called to be the pastor or the elder. Uh, the whole church does not have a teaching role. 
except when we sing together, when we sing hymns and spiritual songs, these glorious hymns that are in our hymn books, we are in a sense teaching one another and we are in a sense admonishing one another. We have some great hymns of uh, perseverance, perseverance in the Lord. And when we sing those hymns together, it is as though we are urging one another, singing to one another to persevere in the Lord. There are great hymns of submission to God's will. And when we sing them together, we are teaching one another. So as a church, yes, there is the, the elders and the pastors. They are the ones given that responsibility. But there is, in a sense, the whole church teaching one another and admonishing one another and calling lost sinners to salvation when we have our gospel services and when we sing about repentance and faith and sing those words, come, come ye sinners poor and needy. It is as though the whole congregation is preaching and singing to one another, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And so that, I believe, is the best sense, the best application we can make because these verses are speaking about the church as one body, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Again, in our hearts, sincerity. John Davenant, the great Puritan commentator on, the, uh, on this book, this letter of Colossians, he writes this, and this is very interesting. The action of singing declares, as it were, the internal exaltation of the heart. It's the heart that is expressed declaring the internal exaltation. That's a very good way of putting it. But then he adds, he therefore acts the hypocrite who sings with the heart asleep. And well, sometimes we can be guilty of that. We can be singing the hymns, but our hearts are asleep. Our hearts are to be engaged, singing the words, believing the words, loving the words. If it is an evangelistic message, longing in our hearts for souls to be saved. So the heart is so important, mentioned more than once in this passage, singing with grace or gratitude in your hearts to the Lord. But let's come to verse 17, and this will be our final verse this evening. And whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God and the Father by him. Whatsoever we do, we do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Well, it goes without saying, really, that everything that the, the apostle has mentioned here, the putting on of the new nature, the being merciful, the being kind, the being meek and the long-suffering, why are we doing these things? Is it so that we can be called good people, good Christian people? No, it's for the Lord. Do all in the name of the Lord Jesus for his glory. So that those who see us will desire to know him, to know Christ, 
We're doing it for him, in his name, everything that we do. Do we fight sin? Yes, of course we fight sin. Why are you fighting sin? For yourself? Because you'll have a better life if you can get this sin out of your life, out of your habits. Life will be much more easier for you. Or are you doing it for Christ? Because Christ has died for sin. And you understand the price that he has paid for sin. And what a glorious thing it would be if people see you and you are without that sin. They'll think of Christ and they'll long to know him. When we uh, go to work in our places of work, workplaces, yes, we work hard. Why are we working hard? For ourselves, for promotion, for more money or for Christ? So that people will see your good conduct and your hard work and how you never grumble, you never complain, you never cut corners. And they will think this person is a Christian. And his faith must have something to do with the way he is. And they, even though there are unbelievers, they will think upon Christ and they will glorify him. Christ. Because when we do these things for Christ, that's when the power comes. If we do things for ourselves, if we try to uh, live for ourselves, there is no power for that. Living for our own ambitions and aspirations, there's no power. If we do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, then God blesses us. We know that the Apostle Paul in the letter to the Philippians said, I can do all things. How can he do all things? How can you do all things? Through Christ, which strengtheneth me, which strengtheneth us. We can do all things in the name of Christ, not for ourselves, not for our own glory, our own advance. Through Christ, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. Of course, Christ is the only mediator. The only way we can truly give thanks to God is through Christ. But we give thanks that we can do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. We have been chosen, again, the elect of God, called in one body from eternity past. We give thanks that we can do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Millions, billions of people in this world, they can't or they do not. They don't do anything in the name of the Lord Jesus and they have no power from God to help them. They have no answer to prayer. They have no guidance. They have no blessing of the Holy Spirit. But we give thanks that we can do any, everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have been chosen and not because of anything good in ourselves, because of the grace of God, giving thanks to God and the Father. The Father has chosen us, a people, and so we give thanks to him that we are in this position. We can do everything, not for ourselves, but for the greatest cause, the greatest person, the Lord Jesus Christ. These are the exhortations, wonderful exhortations, challenging exhortations. 
but ones that we ought to take heed of and to obey and to love. This is the word of God. May the Lord bless this word to us and may it dwell richly in our hearts. 